Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Mayor Mike Duggan recently told a group of Detroit business leaders and lawmakers that the first few years of his administration were focused squarely on improving basic and essential services. Now he says he's shifting toward carrying out a vision for the city's future. To understand where we're going, he says, everyone with a stake in Detroit's success has to understand our history. And that's a history that's deeply rooted in racism and the way it affects land use. That may seem obvious to some of us. The audience, though, that Duggan was talking to was a largely white and generally wealthy group of influential people. Here is part of Duggan's speech at the Mackinac Policy Conference where he gave a brief history lesson on how land was deeded and homes were mortgaged in the mid-20th century. They wouldn't fund integration and appraisers in assessing the appraisal are instructed to predict the probability of the location being invaded by incompatible racial and social groups. So if you were adjacent to a minority area, your appraisal got downgraded. And so, of course, how did it match up? Not surprising, where the African-American population was concentrated was redlining. And one of the most extreme cases up there in Eight Mile, Wyoming, because by the 1940s, they were out to Eight Mile, the last of the farmland in the city of Detroit. And you had a developer who said, there's a, there's a mixed neighborhood, a racially mixed neighborhood that built out here, uh, was a pride of a number of the African-American communities, and a developer wanted to build right next door. And they went to the federal government. And the FHA said, we won't make the loan because you're adjacent to a mixed neighborhood. There is no racial homogeneity. Development was dead. Developer said, I got an idea. So the developer came back and said, I'll build a wall, okay? And they said, here's what we'll do. Here's the existing African-American neighborhood. We'll build this wall. And the wall doesn't have to be so high, it has barbed wire, but we won't make loans to black people on this side of the wall. And the FHA said, great. And they approved the project. And they built the wall. This is Eight Mile and Burwood. They built this wall where the black families lived here, built a new subdivision there. You can see the children in the old neighborhood up against the wall. This is what our federal government did. That wall still exists today. You can go see it, it's half a mile long. Now, the children of Detroit have since painted it with images of uh, civil rights, but that wall still exists in the city of Detroit today. These experiences are very much in the conscience of Detroiters passed down from generation to generation. In many cases, we have folks who still remember them. Okay, that was Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan with a very illuminative story about our history here in the city of Detroit up on the Mackinac Island for the Mackinac Policy Conference just a few weeks ago. Joining me now to spend the hour talking about how race and racism and the history of race and racism in this region affect our city and the policymaking decisions that he faces every day is Mike Duggan, the mayor of the city of Detroit. Mike, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me back, Stephen. It's good to see you. So I was uh, I was in the press room up on Mackinac when you were giving that speech. It was not in the auditorium. But on that audio clip we just played, you can hear the gasping that some people are doing as you're telling this story about this wall. And I think... I think they're gasping about 
the specific example because a lot of people don't know about it. But I also think there was a sort of surprise at the bluntness and context that you were trying to give that uh, the, 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 the subject of the challenges we face here in the city of Detroit. I think people were surprised to see you up there talking about race and the history of race in Detroit and how that affects the things that you do. Uh, well, you could feel the tension in the room in the first 10 minutes of my That's speech. Right. I mean, people were uncomfortable, and it was a racially mixed audience, predominantly white, but it was, it was racially mixed. There was a, a discomfort. Uh, Council President Brenda Jones told me that the gentleman next to her walked out and kept saying, I'm sorry, I didn't know, I'm sorry. So for some people, it, it, it had an effect. But basically, the point of the speech wasn't to be so much backward-looking, but to lay out the principles by which we're rebuilding this city today and the principles of inclusion. And uh, every time we have a development and, and we're making a policy decision that, that affordable housing is going to be included in these developments, that so people are not going to be pushed out, and I get questions, well, why do you have to do that? And I felt like uh, everybody's in one place. And I don't think everybody understands the history. And the fact of the matter is uh, that the policies of the federal government, the policies of state government, policies of city government uh, for, for nearly a century uh, have uh, contributed to where we are today. I, my thing wasn't to blame. My thing was to say, here's how we got here. Here are the policies that we got here. And as the city rebuilds, uh, we are going to do this in a way that's fair and inclusive. And here's why. And, and I mean, you were up there and you know, but uh, I thought the reaction from you know, people across the board was was very positive and much more understanding about what are the principles behind why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, talk about how, on a day-to-day basis, you think about those issues, equity, fairness, uh, pushing back against the awful history of racism in this in this city, obviously in this country. What 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 can I look at in the first four years of the Mike Duggan administration that would tell me we're headed in a different direction? Uh, well, let me start with how, how I think about it. Uh, you know, a a city that is eighty three percent African American in a very difficult time voted for me over a very strong African American sheriff candidate, sure, sure. Uh, and 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 that uh, just leaves me with an enormous sense of responsibility, uh, because, uh, the people in this town believed, uh, that longtime Detroiters, uh, would have a better future, uh, if they voted for me. And, and, you know, I, I did 250 house parties. I sat in people's living rooms all of 2013, which is how I got elected. And I came out with a perspective on this city. The speech I gave at Mackinac was stories I heard in living rooms uh, across the city. Uh, And so everything that we do is to say, those who stayed, how do they benefit from the rebirth? Because we want to be welcome for everybody. Everybody should be included. Other countries, other states, the suburbs, uh, Detroiters who left, everybody should be welcome. But we have to rebuild the city in a way that builds around those who stayed. And so really everything we've done, uh, you saw the case of 1214 Griswold, which got turned into the Albert uh, the year before I got elected. Uh, You had people who had been in low-income subsidized housing for, in some cases, 20, 30 years, get kicked out almost overnight because city government didn't protect the housing subsidies. We had 
2,200 more units going to expire in the next three years. We had 2,200 more people kicked out as investors came in with market rate. We intervened so far on every single property and struck arrangements to get the building owners uh, to renew the housing subsidies so that low-income folks can stay in their properties, most in downtown and midtown, but also in a number of other places in the city. One, as I pointed out, across from me uh, near the near the Manoogian. Uh, and so we've done that. You haven't been seeing those stories in the last three or four years. Everybody who tries to build a new apartment building in the city wants city help. We insist that a minimum of 20% be affordable so that you have people of all incomes uh, living in all neighborhoods. Uh, and these are things we've done. And we can talk about building by building, project by project, uh, but it's been the philosophy that, that we operate under every day. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Mayor Mike Duggan of the city of Detroit. We are talking, uh, at least in part, about the speech he delivered up on Mackinac Island at the Mackinac Policy Conference last month, where he gave a brief history lesson on the way that race and racism shape the history of the city of Detroit and affect the decisions that we make today about the future. If you want to join the conversation, have a question for the mayor, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work your comments into the conversation. Uh, Mr. Mayor, I want to I want to ask you about a specific example here of uh, of this very question we're talking about, which is who benefits from the things that happen here in the city of Detroit. This week in the news is uh, the question of whether the Pistons, who have agreed to move back to Detroit from Auburn Hills and play in the new Little Caesars Arena, ought to be receiving $34.5 million in subsidy uh, to, to, to make that move. There's been a lawsuit filed that says, as Detroiters, we ought to have the right to vote on those things. Of course, the DDA, which is responsible for managing those kinds of incentives, has existed for a long time. We've seen deals like this before in the city. I, I want to give you a chance to talk about that specific case, but I also want you to put that in the context of this question about who benefits. $34 million for a sports team uh, whose owner is a billionaire at the same time that we have neighborhoods where people live next door to houses that are falling into the street, where we have uh, neighborhoods that don't have sufficient schools, that don't have sufficient uh, uh, services still, that kind of contrast, I think, sticks out in people's minds. I think it says to people that as much as you've done, as you point out, to try to push back and try to expand the sort of pool of benefit for the things that happens here, there's still something fundamentally wrong with the way we think about these things in the city of Detroit. Can you talk about that? Well, you have different sources of funds for different projects. We've got $258 million in federal funds of demolition that go in particular areas. We've got uh, HUD funds that redevelop properties and move in low-income people, DDA funds, by law, can only be used for economic development purposes within the downtown district. And so instead of spending it, and basically what we're doing is taking money that would have come in between 2045 and 2048 
and we're borrowing against that to make the modifications to bring the Pistons down. I don't know if there's a place in America that has brought a major sports team down uh, for a $34 million contribution. Usually it's, it's hundreds of millions of dollars. But if uh, we hadn't done that, it would have gone to some office building or something else. That's the way uh, DDAs are set up. And, and Stephen, I, I want to take issue with something that, you know, I just don't think the media has done a particularly good job of, of clarifying. There's been suggestions out there uh, that the Pistons deal somehow affects the funding of the school children in Detroit. And that is just so false. Uh, the students in Detroit get a state foundation grant. I think last year it was like $7,552. The state of Michigan pays that amount no matter how much is collected in local taxes. So uh, what the state did when they passed the hockey arena bill in 2012 was say, the state of Michigan will pay for this. Now, whether that was right or wrong, uh, it is the state of Michigan whose taxes are being collected and used for this. It doesn't affect the school children of Detroit uh, a single dollar. But when you put together a city, you have housing projects that work on housing programs. You have incentives, for example, Flexingate that's bringing 700 manufacturing jobs to the east side of Detroit. And you've got incentives for downtown development. And, and, and each of these funds is statutorily restricted for a specific purpose. But shouldn't we be then asking the question about why that's true? Or should we be looking at uh, a different way to prioritize the way that we collect taxes and redistribute them across the city. So, for instance, uh, could we not have a provision of the DDA that set aside money specifically to go to neighborhoods or to schools or to specific projects in neighborhoods uh, off of these projects? Could we think of another way to come up with a direct way for the things that are happening downtown that we're all excited about uh, and that make this a better city as well? Is there a, is there a rethink that is in order given, given the really, really intense needs and poverty that still exist in our neighborhood? And, and so I have to deal with the laws as they exist and to the extent we could get them changed. The state legislature adopted a bill for the hockey arena in which the state essentially said, we're willing to pay for the hockey arena. Now, had I wasn't here in 2012, but I suspect had Mayor Bing gone up and said to the legislature, pass a bunch of money for neighborhoods in Detroit, the chances of the Republican legislature doing that uh, was, was virtually none. But to say you don't benefit, we're benefiting enormously. We are seeing income tax collections in this city uh, uh, rise uh, at rates we haven't seen. And so last week we had 52 police officers graduate from the police academy. We're putting 300 more officers on the street. We've got another 150 uh, in the academy. Uh, next month we are starting a huge board-up campaign for the houses we're not going to be able to demolish in the next year or so. We're going to board up the other 11 or 12,000 that are in the pipeline. These things are being funded because the city is coming back economically. We're collecting the income tax revenues. We're balancing our budget. And so this is how you manage a city. You have uh, uh, businesses that generate revenues for you. And if you're running the city well, you're using those revenues wisely to provide public safety, neighborhood redevelopment, job training and the like. And that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Uh, give me a sense, though, of how 
far you think we are. I mean, you spend a lot of time in neighborhoods. I spend a lot of time in neighborhoods. I've been spending more and more time in the neighborhood where my family lived when I was born near Livernois and Grand River, uh, a forgotten place in many ways here in the city of Detroit. And so I'm a little more familiar on a daily basis with the things that are just not reaching places like that. When, when can we expect to see change there? And, and so you're asking a really good question. And I have done something, and of course people who have been at the community meetings have seen this over and over, is we've had a very clear plan. Every neighborhood in this city has gotten new streetlights. Every neighborhood in this city has gotten prompt garbage pickup. Every neighborhood has gotten their grass cut in their parks. Every neighborhood is getting much better police and ambulance response time. That applies to everybody. Then we went as far as intense redevelopment, demolition, selling vacant houses. We've moved 3,000 families into vacant houses in the last three years. We started in 2014 in the neighborhoods that were 90% or more occupied. Then in 2015, we went to every neighborhood 80% or more occupied. Now, this year, we're into neighborhoods 70% or more occupied because we started where I believe we could get people to fill in those vacant houses uh, in order, you're in a neighborhood that's below that, and so we'll be very shortly uh, rolling out the details that I've shared with, with the block club leaders in the last month, but we're going to go into neighborhoods uh, like yours with board-up brigades where we are going to board up every single vacant house because we know we're not going to be able to get to the demolitions for two or three years. Uh, we're going to go in and board up every single vacant house, uh, and we are going to enforce the rental codes on landlords in a vigorous way that hasn't been done. Uh, and we're going to do that in every neighborhood. So we're starting, uh, we're going to go clean out the, um, uh, the drains, the catchments that's, that flood up onto your street when it rains. We're going to clean out every clogged catchment drain in this city over the next three years. And so uh, I've been honest with people. This, has been, this problem has been 60 years in the making, uh, and we are coming back at it. Uh, and I'm credibly trying to say, this is what I think we can do next. This is what I think we can do next. And there are people who are saying, uh, you haven't gotten to me yet. And those are hard conversations to have, but I've been honest about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, and I think for some people, it's a matter of priorities, like who comes first. And it seems from the outside and even from the way that you describe it here, that a fair assessment of that is that some of the people at the top are at the front of the line, whereas most of the people at the bottom are at the back of the line. And and I, I'm not saying that's your fault. I'm saying I would say to you, the question is, so, why don't we push back against so, it? So let's, let's talk about the street lighting. We lit this city from outside in, doing downtown and midtown last. Uh, we did the neighborhoods first, Main Street second. We went outside in. So it does not reflect that. Uh, when I came in, only 12 city parks were being cut. The neighborhood parks were forgotten. We cut all 275 city parks every 7 to 10 days. It isn't some parks get them and some parks don't. And if you're seeing what we're doing now, we are taking bond money that had been sitting in the city for 15 years that hadn't been spent. We're renovating 40 small half-acre neighborhood parks. I'm out every weekend with one of these, and I can't tell you how emotionally powerful these is. Neighbors coming out, I was out at one on the west side uh, a week ago, and the lady said, that swing set there was here when I moved in 40 years ago, except it used to have swigs on it. Uh, nobody's touched it since. Now we're putting in uh, new playscapes in 40 small neighborhood parks 
uh, across the city. So I, I don't accept the premise of what you're saying. Uh, I think we are dealing with uh, what we can deal with in a reasonable way. And, Stephen, I'd remind you, this city got into bankruptcy because you had mayors and councils who were spending money they didn't have, promising things that couldn't be done year after year until the city went broke. And so what you've got, and I show people maps, I show people timelines, and and everybody wants to be first. The reality is... Uh, that we got to have priorities. We're being honest about them. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan, and we're going to take your calls. Kenneth in Detroit, Tom in Detroit, Gene in Detroit. We'll get to you next. Stay with us. Your city. Your town. Your voice. 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest this hour is Mayor Mike Duggan of the city of Detroit. We are talking about the first four years of his administration, and the next four years. The mayor gave a speech up on Mackinac Island during the Mackinac Policy Conference that tried to put the things that he's doing in some historical context, important historical context, about the way race and racism have shaped the situation we have right now in the city of Detroit. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work your comments into the conversation. Gene in Detroit, you're up first. Yes, good morning, Stephen. Hey, Gene, how are you? Good morning, Your Honor. Good morning. I would like to ask why weren't more of the hardest hit funds used to keep homeowners in their homes vis a vis? the uh, municipal tax foreclosures. Uh, so, Gene, good question. So the, uh, hard, the hardest fine. hit funds were passed by Congress and President Obama to take people who were underwater in their mortgages uh, and do workouts because the banks had been bailed out. The idea was the homeowners behind in their mortgages. When uh, it became clear around 2012, 2013, uh, that they had far more money than anybody needed in, in workouts and it was going to lapse back, a number of states chose to go to uh, a demolition program. Uh, and Michigan was one of them. And so uh, Detroit has demolished you know, five times more uh, homes than the next closest city. We've dramatically raised the property values, which was the theory. And then in December of 16, uh, Debbie Stabenow, led an effort as Congress was facing a shutdown to put $2 billion into demolition funds. And we had a national coalition that included Jamie Dimon for J.P. Morgan Chase and Reverend Jesse Jackson to put that $2 billion in demolition funds. It was passed for the purposes uh, of demolition. And uh, Michigan and Detroit have got the uh, biggest allocations. And uh, all you have to do is go around this city 
uh, and you can see the need. So, uh, but, but but one and you're right. It was it was targeted at people who were underwater on their mortgages. It didn't have anything to do with tax foreclosure per se. And I'll, we'll get to tax foreclosure a little bit later because uh, that's a subject I think is pretty pressing in the city as well. But but do you think that the city could have could have done more on the underwater mortgage? front to prevent some of the abandonment and blight that we see now. In other words, if we had directed more of that money up in the initial allocation toward that instead of demolition, uh, would we have stopped feeding the problem? If we could beam back in time, and I could have been mayor of Detroit in 2008 when the housing crisis came, absolutely. I think there could have been a much more rapid uh, intervention, and a number of states took legal, a number of cities took legal action and got resources. Uh, I think the city uh, uh, was way too slow, and, and we lost something like 20% of the city's population between 2008 uh, and 2013. So would I like to be able to go back in time and say, in 2008 I could have dealt with it at a time? I wish I could. I came in in January 2014 with 40,000 vacant houses sitting there, and we had 60,000 foreclosures uh, staring us in the face over the next two years. I went to Lansing with the Michigan Treasurer's Association and got the bill passed that dramatically cut those foreclosures. Because, Stephen, as you know, under the law as it existed, if the county treasurer wanted to to do a payment plan to keep you in your home, they, by law, had to charge you 18% interest. It wasn't helping anybody. We got the law passed, and the legislature only let us do it on a two-year demonstration basis to offer four- and five-year repayments at 6%. We avoided 60,000 foreclosures, and it was so successful that County Treasurer Eric Sabree just got the legislature to extend it uh, again. So there are a lot of different uh, strategies, and, and of course, the last three years, we've cut property tax assessments three straight years to continue to make it more affordable. So we're working hard to, to prevent foreclosures. We've got teams that door knock. Everybody who is prospectively being foreclosed to let them know about the assistance and the payment plans. We've reduced the assessments, and we're raising the property values in the neighborhoods by taking down the, the burned-out homes. And yeah. I think those strategies together are the right solution. So, so despite those efforts, though, we still see this yearly parade, really, of tax-foreclosed properties um, going into this auction, uh, going uh, into the land bank if they don't go into the auction. We have 10,000 scheduled to go in this year. 4,000 of them are occupied homes. Three of them are on the block where I was born over on Tuxedo. Are we doing so, enough to keep people so, so, so in let, Let's talk about homes? that. So you're right. There's 10,000. There were 50,000. There were, okay. there were a so, lot more. So, so the numbers are down dramatically. 4,000 occupied homes. We have teams that are door knocking. Every single one of those 4,000 occupied homes and uh, 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 the, uh, the whole housing coalition and Vicki Cavari from our staff uh, have got teams out trying to prevent that. But here's what we find. Every year the land bank gets a, gets a couple of thousand houses where they are occupied. The land bank uh, owns them. We go talk to people who say, what's happening? They said, I was a renter. I was paying my rent every month. And I, I had no idea. I had no idea the landlord wasn't paying their taxes until they put the, common, the yellow notice on the door. Uh, and so uh, Councilman Andre Spivey is, is about to introduce an ordinance that says if you are going to have a certificate to lawfully rent property in Detroit, you have to be current on your taxes. Uh, and so we are going to stop this scam where the landlords are collecting rent checks 
and not paying uh, their property taxes. Uh, so these are complicated issues. But here's what we've done, Stephen. We've gone to the people, the tenants who are there, and we said, we don't want to put you out. And so we've started a program uh, where they go to you snap back, get credit counseling, put $1,000 down, pay $100 a month for their taxes in escrow for 12 months, and they buy the property. And we've had a few hundred people actually who were tenants buy the properties and take ownership because we're doing everything we can to try to keep people from being put out of their homes. One, one other possibility there is that the city can always intervene in tax foreclosures. You have right of first refusal on these properties. Is it practical for you to go through and say, hey, these are occupied homes, these 4,000 homes, people are in them, we're going to take them and be sure that people don't get put out? Yeah, you know, I don't even know how you would begin to do that, to go into the wholesale landlord business. Uh, you know, I got enough issues at the at the land bank, uh, but I got to tell you, I think Treasurer Eric Sabri is just doing a phenomenal job in the outreach effort to try to keep people in his homes. And what I have been doing is working with the treasurer on every single one of these initiatives uh, to keep people in the homes. Okay. Again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. Three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. Before we get back to the phones, if you could change something about the way we do the tax foreclosure process. Just one thing that you think would make a big difference. I mean, if you think about it, all of the things that you're doing, all of the things, the efforts that you're making in neighborhoods get undermined by the, the again, the parade of properties into this tax foreclosure status. What's the big picture solution to this so that we stop sort of, um, you know, feeding, feeding the problem every year? If you'd asked me that three years ago, we were looking at 50 or 60,000 a year. Uh, it was a much greater concern. The numbers are down uh, dramatically right now. Uh, and so uh, I feel very good uh, about what the treasurer is. Again, this is a state process that the county treasurer uh, administers. Uh, but I feel good about what he's doing. I feel good about what the volunteers are doing at the doors. I feel good about the repayment plans. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I, what the solution is more jobs in the city. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones, 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work your comments into the conversation. Let's go to Cindy. Cindy from the 8 Mile Boulevard Association. Welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Mayor Duggan. Yeah, good morning. Um, I wanted to make a, a couple points. I wanted to thank uh, Mayor Duggan and the city. Um, one of the ways that um, people don't know that the mayor supports the neighborhoods is through supporting organizations like ours who are doing work in the neighborhoods um, by uh, renovating parks and community gardens. And the other thing is through facade improvement programs. And one of the big projects we are completing with um, the help of city funds is the eight mile, the block on eight mile at Burwood. And we've been trying to draw attention to the Burwood wall for, for quite a while. And because we've improved those uh, storefronts on that block, the owner of the store that's right at the corner of Burwood and eight mile has expressed an interest now in improving his property. And we think that that would be a great way, a great place to put a mural 
to bring attention to that Burwood Wall. And uh, so we can um, point out the history and never forget the history because yeah. it's an important part of um, of our culture. Yeah. Cindy, Cindy and, thanks very much for the call and those comments. As the mayor pointed out in his speech, uh, they have, I mean, kids have been sort of muraling that wall for some time, it's a it's a pretty colorful uh, uh, object. There Drawings now. of Rosa Parks, and yeah, the bus right. And, it's uh, a lot more appealing from a visual standpoint now than it used to be. It's still though this symbol of this awful past. But what Cindy's pointing out is happening in so many areas of the city, and that is, if you wait for city government to solve all the problems, you can wait a long time. But what's happening is they're doing it on Eight Mile, they're doing it on Livernoy, they're doing it on Verner, they're doing it on McNichols. You've got neighborhood and business associations coming together saying, we're going to improve the storefront. We're going, and now we're up to almost 180 businesses with green lights. They've created zones of safety. Uh, but it has been the partnership with neighborhood groups and business groups across the city coming forward. Uh, and the neighborhood groups come to us and say, we're going to organize a huge cleanup. We'll come and deliver a dumpster for the weekend and take it away. And so, uh, you know, for all of those groups out there that are on the ground driving Detroit's rebirth, they're the ones that are, that are making the difference. Yeah. Uh, again, Cindy, thanks for the call. Let's go to Kenneth in Detroit. Welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, hey, uh, Mr. Mayor. Good morning. I, I presumed you would win when you were running before you stopped me, and you won. There's things, the insurance, the car insurances. I know that's put off till the fall. Please continue to work on that. Help us. Help us to, to, to improve our homes by lowering those insurance rates, those car insurance rates. Um, that you've, you've done a fine job. I appreciate you speaking out up in Mackinac. Um, that. All we can ask is that you continue to work in the cities and, and put the ordinance departments to work. You you promised that you'd have those uh, houses that they're renting out. Um, continue working those. That's that's what we need. Um, I yeah. love my home. I love my city. Please take care of those things. You will be the next mayor again if you start <laughs> working those neighborhoods. I promise you that. Yeah, Kenneth, well, thank you. Thanks very much thank for the call. You. Where are we with with auto insurance? I, I was at dinner uh, last night with one of the top Republican legislators, going over the uh, the details of where uh, we are going. And I am I'm really feeling confident this fall uh, we're going to get a solution. And uh, the I think now people more and more understand that car insurance is where it is because the medical profession and the lawyers are ripping off the uh, auto owners in this state. And it costs $900 to insure a car in Ohio. It costs $1,700 on average to insure a car in the suburbs and $3,400 on average to insure a car in Detroit. And it's because of this 1973 no-fault statute that Lansing has got to fix that allowed doctors and hospitals to charge whatever they wanted. Uh, And... uh, Tom Leonard, the Speaker of the House, has said to me, last time you tried to do it and give Detroiters the option to bring their rates down, he says, let's try it a different way. Let's bring the rates down for everybody in Michigan. Uh, and I'm right now, rates are rising faster in Macomb County than they are in Detroit because these same scams they're running on these uh, ridiculous bills and the lawyers uh, uh, encouraging these high bills are now starting to spread to the surrounding, sub- the surrounding suburbs, and, and we're going to find and a bigger you, coalition. And you still think that the the solution is this 
sort of smaller insurance package where there is a limitation on the medical uh, the medical expenses so, you so, can charge. So here's what happens. If you're on Medicare and you go in for an MRI today, remember I come from the healthcare industry, I understand sure. this stuff. You go in for an MRI today, Medicare will pay the doctor and clinic $500. If you're on Blue Cross, Blue Cross will pay that same doctor in that same clinic $600. If you go in on car insurance, that doctor and clinic get paid $3,100. Same office, same MRI, uh, and the lawyers are encouraging the running up of these medical bills because they're suing and taking a third of them, which is why you see all these billboards about Ben in a car accident. Call sure. me. Here's the people who ought to be the angriest. In the other 49 states in America, if you're on Medicare, you're covered if you're in a car accident. I mean, Medicare covers you in the hospital and your care. But in Michigan, it's the only state where you have to buy your health insurance, even if you're 68 years old and on Medicare. The law says you have to pay for health care a second time on your car insurance. Nearly half the premiums the senior citizens in Michigan are paying are for the health care they already have. And I think the legislature, uh, which stopped us the last time because of the lobbying of the lawyers and the doctors, I think the legislature is now getting very concerned how they're going to explain to seniors why do you have to double pay for your health care when you've already got Medicare coverage. So we're seeing real momentum. Uh, it's an indefensible position uh, that the medical community and the lawyers have taken, and I think there's a lot of uh, – And you're certain that, that rates will go down and people will not want for coverage in catastrophic accidents if this, if this and, passes. And so you will get the option – that you want. If you've already got health care coverage and you fall off a ladder, you have catastrophic care. Why are you paying for it a second time when you write your car insurance check? It's only the state of Michigan is the only one of the 50 states that has all of your health care coverage in a car accident uh, paid out of your car insurance. Everybody else relies uh, on health care coverage uh, you already have. But yes, I do expect to get guaranteed rate cuts into the bill. Otherwise, there's no point to be doing this. Yeah. Okay, let's go to Maurice in Detroit. Welcome to Detroit Today, Maurice. Hi, thanks for taking my call, Stephen. Sure. Um, and thanks, Mr. Mayor, for, for being on the show. Good morning. I had a question about something that you said uh, earlier in the show um, where you were, uh, like many mayors around uh, cities in, in the country, touting um, 80% and 20% as the levels of uh, affordable housing that are good to keep long-term residents in their homes. I'm just curious, you're a smart guy. Over time, is that a sustainable way to keep people uh, in their neighborhoods since you're trading 80% for 20%? Um, and before you answer, just one uh, quick comment about uh, tax foreclosures that, as uh, having no, knowing several people who are going through the tax foreclosure process, um, it's not particularly helpful to hear that because the numbers are from 50,000 to 10,000, that it's not as big of a priority. I'll jump off and take your answer offline. Thanks. Maurice, thanks very okay. much for the uh, call and the comments. And Go so, ahead, so the Mayor. question was how much it's holding back our progress. And I, you know, I feel the same way on the homicide rate. You, you can bring it down 10%. It's not an acceptable number, but it's still uh, evidence of, uh, uh, of progress. But you, you misunderstood what I said on the affordable. The existing affordable housing, we are preserving 100%. Every affordable unit that's in these apartment buildings for the last four years, we have made sure that 100% of them that were up for renewal have gotten a renewal on federal subsidy. 
then when new housing of any type is being built, somebody wants to build uh, a, uh, an office building on Alexandrian, two blocks from DMC, the Strathmore, uh, 120 units. 40% of the new housing in that case was set aside as affordable. So we're keeping the affordable we have, and every time there's a new apartment building with city support, we're adding on more and more affordable at 20%. And what that is doing for us is we've had, I think, 20 projects in downtown and midtown in the last four years, housing projects that have been built that had 20% or more affordable. So we're spreading uh, the affordable unit. What I like to say is doctors and, and nurses can afford these high-end apartments, but now the folks who push the wheelchairs and who uh, make the food in the kitchens uh, are able to live in that neighborhood as well. That's the kind of city we're trying to build. Yeah. Uh, what about his comment about uh, tax foreclosure? Yeah, 10,000 is still a lot of people. Yeah, you, you, it's, you start with a universe, and I don't know what the number is, 10,000, but there is a redemption period. That number is going to come down significantly. And so there is a whole team of volunteers who are out right now knocking on doors. And every year we see this, 60%, 70% of the people who start off in foreclosure end up getting in payment plans and coming out of it. And, and I don't know how to say this any more than I can. Our people are knocking on every single person's door who's subject to foreclosure saying, here are the means uh, to help you. And uh, what you can do besides saying, here are the means, put people in payment plans and the like, uh, I'm not sure what else you're... Uh, supposed to do, but I've been very pleased that Ted Phillips and the whole team has been organizing that. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan and take more of your calls. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest this hour is Mayor Mike Duggan of the city of Detroit. We're talking about his first four years in office and his bid for another four years uh, up on Mackinac Island uh, last month at the Mackinac Policy Conference. The mayor tried to put the challenges that we face in Detroit into the context of our racial history, uh, the history of race and racism in Detroit, how it informs the things we see today and how it ought to shape the way we tr approach our problems in the future. You want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there or go to uh, go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work your comments into the conversation. Uh, let's go to Judy in Detroit. Judy, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi. Thank you, Stephen. Mm -hmm. Hello, um, Mr. Mayor. I really appreciate your willingness to come on this show and explain things. My only hesitance, I, I have followed your career in your mayoral career um, since you first were considering running. I remember a story you told out at a coffee shop one time in which you described going into a um, local pastor's um, office and telling 
him that you were thinking about running for mayor, and he looked at you and said, I don't, you do know you're white, don't you, Mike? And I thought that was a wonderful story. And I think you have demonstrated, like at the Mackinac Policy Council and other places, your commitment to an, a, a, a post-racial I don't know how to say that, a diverse and sustainable community. My only hesitancy about you has been I I have thought many times that you identified too much with the big guys, um, the Illiches and the uh, Gilberts and and those folks, and, and not enough with the city. But I'm beginning to realize that all of this is much more complicated than I understand. I've been following Detroit politics for about 60 years now, and there's a lot of it I just don't get because I don't have the information that you have. But I am very impressed by the scope and complexity of your vision of this city and of what it is and what it can be. And I just wanted to tell you, my husband and I were out doing our radio patrol last week, and we live in, in, um, I don't know if you know us as a Waco neighborhood. Oh, sure, absolutely. Uh, Go ahead. Go ahead, Judy. We got to... Get, we gotta get to the point here. Can you can you quickly? Okay, we're running I'm out sorry. of time. That's I tend okay. To be a motor mouth. That's all right. Uh, um, and the point is that every time we're on patrol, we are looking at the, how does the neighborhood look today. And last week, we were just amazed as we drove every street in this neighborhood and realized how much better it looks here. Just because of all the houses that have been torn down. Yeah, Judy. Judy, I appreciate the the call and those and those comments. Uh, they're uh, a part of the city that most people probably are not familiar with, uh, but that you've gotten to over on the west side. Uh, uh, it is. It is an area that has. But you know, our our latest polling shows seventy two percent of Detroiters feel the city is heading uh, the right direction, uh, whereas. Forty-five percent of the people in the state think the state's heading the right direction, and thirty-five percent of the country. Uh, and so you're who doing better than who, Rick who, Snyder and Donald who Trump? Who would I'm have not sure thought? <laughs> who would have thought you'd see the day? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but you know I understand the reality is that you know uh, if you sat with me in a house party three years ago, it was police aren't showing up, lights are out, get the house down. You're sitting with me now. It's the dead tree in front of my house. Uh, it's the catchment area that's clogged up and, and flooding uh, the drain. It's my neighbor who leaves the garbage can out for three days. It is a very different conversation, and that's good because expectations are rising and people are getting more demanding, and that's the way it's supposed to work. Yeah, we have some uh, questions on our Facebook page that I want to get to quickly. Uh, I think they're pretty quick answers. Uh, one from Onita Jackson says, uh, please ask the mayor how he feels about sports fans who come to the city and disrespect it and how he addresses that topic. You know, I, I think what happened on opening day was wrong, and I've talked to the chief about it, and I agree. We're, we're going to deal with that more aggressively. Yeah. Uh, Robert Elms, director of Galapagos Art Space, says, we endorse you for mayor two days before you announce your re-election campaign. Well, when will the you. city create a Department of Cultural Affairs to help coordinate the growth of arts in Detroit? Yeah, we're talking about that right now. In fact, I was uh, down on Grand Boulevard with a, 
a group of artistic folks and a lot of the uh, electronic uh, music folks last night who are uh, asking exactly the same question. Uh, and we got to figure this out because not all artists want to be organized. Uh, you know, so, uh, so <laughs> That's sort of but, the antithesis uh, of. Uh, so, uh, but but no, you're, they're raising a good point, and we're talking about do we bring this council back, and is it a bunch of wealthy people affiliated with the DIA, or can we get the emerging kind of artist music uh, community uh, to come together, and uh, and we're gonna we're gonna get that. We're going to get something going with the, basically the rebels driving it. Yeah. Let's go to Jeff in Detroit. Jeff, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, how you doing? Um, first of all, I want to say thanks to the mayor for being uh, so inclusive and great and enacting a lot of programs that have helped this city, in my view. Uh, I've been a resident for eight years and uh, grew up in the region. And uh, I live at the Gratiot and Shane area. We had a shooting over there recently where an off-duty police officer was uh, right. Right. was killed uh, at mm-hmm. night at a liquor store, Motor City Liquor. Mm-hmm. And uh, this has been a real sore spot in the neighborhood. And, um, you know, I was really encouraged when uh, Chief Craig was on Facebook Live within, uh, you know, 20, 30 minutes of the shooting at, at the location, uh, reassuring us what was going on. We heard the shots from uh, from my house. But uh, I'm wondering, what is the mayor doing to incentivize uh, business owners uh, like Motor City Liquor who are... Uh, kind of negligent and, uh, you know, not really taking care of their properties, not keeping this place safe. They don't have proper surveillance. Um, can we get them on the green light program? And what are we doing to incentivize that? Uh, can we, you know, pass yeah. an ordinance to uh, force certain businesses yeah. to get on the program? Because it seems Jeff, to have improved uh, safety. Yeah. At yeah. Jeff, I'm not cutting you off. We just have... Only about a minute and a half left, but I think that's a great question. Can we expand Project Greenlight? It's, it's expanding businesses? rapidly. Uh, we're now up to 180 businesses. We've got 80 more in the pipeline. The council is ready to pass an ordinance saying if your business is open after 10 p.m., uh, you need to be on Greenlight. But we have so many businesses voluntarily in the pipeline, we don't need to do it. And in many cases, neighbors have gone in and demanded of the local business but the thing that's most interesting to me, in the last six months, we've had one carjacking at a green light store, and we had the person arrested within 24 hours. Uh, Chief Craig has made a commitment to this. It is creating zones of safety, and we're just going to keep on expanding it. And I'd encourage the neighbors to talk to their store owners about signing up. Okay. Uh, we've got about 30 seconds left. I want to give you a chance to uh, just sort of wrap up. Say why people ought to vote for you for four more years. Well, you know, I, I'm working long hours, and, and my thing it would be this. If somebody has a plan to do it faster and better, lay it out, because I won't tell you I've solved everything. But I'm waiting for somebody to say uh, I can do, I what can do they specifically what they would have done. But if people want me to rehire me for another four years, I'll do the best I can. All right. Mike Duggan, mayor of the city of Detroit, thank you very much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. We'll have you back soon. That's it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We will see you tomorrow.